Welcome to the podcast, First Things Podcast, the editor's desk. I'm Rusty Reno, editor of First Things, and we have today Nathan Pinkowski, who teaches at the University of Florida, to talk about his marvelous article on uh, uh, Jean Raspe's uh, The Camp of the Saints, titled The Spiritual Death of the West in the May 2023 issue. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Rusty. So, um, uh, tell us who is this author, and um, and and give us a little background on this very controversial novel. Yeah, certainly. So, uh, Jean Raspail uh, is one of the most, I think, well, certainly one of let's say one of the more prominent uh, literary figures in the latter half of the twentieth century, early twenty first century. Um, he certainly doesn't have the name recognition that someone like Michel Houellebecq has. Uh, he's of an older generation, but he was uh, almost then joined the Académie Française. He lost a close vote. He won in 2003 the most important literary prize that the Académie Française offers. And he had a distinguished uh, literary career, uh, writing about a number of different subjects, uh, travel stories uh, early on. He made, his, uh, he made his name doing that. Um, then he sort of switched into this uh, into this other kind of genre, which you might call uh, poetic millenarianism, looking at declines of civilizations and cultures, and uh, imagining kind of alternate histories. What might happen if suddenly um, uh, an extinct culture reappeared, or members of this extinct culture uh, reappeared? So he was, uh, and and also I should add too, uh, he was uh, very well respected in 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 not only uh, Catholic literary circles because he was a Catholic, but also amongst um, the literary and political elite. Uh, he has, he corresponded with uh, the most important political figures of the day, and definitely the most important political figures uh, on the on the left. François Mitterrand uh, had a correspondence uh, with him. Uh, one thing I mentioned in the article too. Uh, Banditaire, the uh, French um, Jewish socialist minister of justice who abolished the death penalty in France, also corresponded with him. So definitely a man who was who was part of the literary cultural uh, uh, elite of of France until he died in 2020. And this novel, what's it about? So I think the best way to understand it is as um, a development of an apocalyptic genre. So when we're talking about this, we're not talking about a disaster fantasy. We're not talking about uh, someone who dreams up um, some kind of uh, uh, destruction story, uh, you know, like these, uh, these films that were popular a few years ago um, that, uh, that kind of show, you're meant to watch New York go underwater and these sorts of things. <laughs> Certainly, that's not the genre we're talking about. We're talking about apocalypse in the sense of unveiling. Someone who wanted to show um, that there, the revelation of a, of a logic, a way of thinking, uh, and put that into a novel, a fiction, a fictional account. So, but, so he wants to look at where sort of certain ideas lead. Exactly, exactly. Where certain ideas lead. The denouement of, their, of these ideas. Yeah, where, exactly, exactly. Where they lead, uh, what, their, what their implications are, uh, 
if they're if they're followed through to their to their logical conclusion. The, I mean the uh, the framework of the novel is that there some event is triggered in India, and this triggers this million person armada of rusting ships that sail to Europe and uh, and the idea is that then they land and this um, this transforms um, uh, the West uh, that's kind of the conceit of the book as I recall is that fair yeah I think that that's certainly the the, the chief engine of the plot but I think what we see and and this is where the novel can lend itself to be easily uh, misinterpreted. Uh, on the one hand, you have people uh, sort of, let's, let's, let's call them perhaps liberals of goodwill, perhaps there's liberals of ill will, who, who see this as a story <laughs> of mass migration and all the damage it does, and then they focus on particular passages which uh, describe the damage or describe the comportment of the, of the migrants and think, look, this novel is clearly showing an inferior uh, trying to portray um, the people of India as inferior. Uh, it's trying to show them as barbaric, barbaric uh, as, as lacking any kind of um, modicum of civilization. Um, and then they focus on that and think that this is the point of the novel. But actually, the what's important, I think, to see is that uh, two, two things. First of all, the Western characters in the novel, the white characters, do not come across well at all. They're, they're vicious uh, they exhibit all kinds of vices. Uh, many of them commit crimes. These are not attractive people. I mentioned in the in the article that there's kind of a schoolboy Nietzscheanism, a, a vulgar Nietzscheanism about many of these characters. So they're not attractive characters. So we're not seeing here a portrayal of, on the one hand, a kind of, I don't know, uh, immaculate Europeans who are sort of uh, models of virtue and heroism, and then these uh, these hordes that come out of the four corners of the world. That's not the portrayal that, that we get. And, and I think that points at the second thing that we need to bear in mind reading this, is is actually the the, the story of migration is just the, the series of events that puts into place that kind of is the icing on the cake, if you will, of a civilization that's already collapsed. It's the final. It's the final blow uh, that shows that the logic, the way of thinking, the practices are all there beforehand that lead to the the collapse of civilization. It leads to this moment being a moment that pushes uh, pushes the civilization over the edge. That leads to the, if you will, the final toppling of the of the temples, the churches, the edifices, all those things that represent uh, that represent the West. So we have to pay attention to that element. Why is it that the civilization is so ready to fall? Uh, and that's, I think, what Raspai is trying to bring out, is, is those practices, comportment, uh, way of thinking that have been there for some time and all suddenly come to a head uh, in, this, uh, in this dramatic event. The Jean-Paul Sartre, you argue, is the, is the actual adversary and not not he's he's concerned about that so what did you you point out that in his preface to france fanon's uh the wretched of the earth which he wrote in 1961 sartre did um he really argued that um uh cosmic justice means that i think quote our soil must be occupied by the formerly colonized people and we must starve of hunger 
So in other words, Sartre is saying that the proper destiny of the West is to die. Exactly, exactly. And he's calling for it. The point of it is, the point of that essay, which is really, really worth reading, I think, for just how stunning the, the rhetoric is uh, and how stunning the argument is. Uh, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, hide any of uh, what he's trying to say. He's calling for the destruction of his own country. What he's, uh, what he's arguing, that the point of the, of the preface is basically to say, look, we did all these terrible things to, uh, to North Africans, uh, to people around the world, and they are merited, they are justified in using all those tactics against us. And this is exactly what the, this is the exhortation. He has one line in there um, where he says, the aim is to teach them to beat us, i.e. we Frenchmen, we Europeans, uh, beat us at our own game. So he's calling for the colonization of, of Europe. He's calling for the destruction of France. And he's not hiding it. It's, it's out there in the open. That's the language that he's uh, that's using, and that's what he's, uh, that's what he's calling for. So it's, it's quite an extraordinary piece, I think, just in terms of, of, um, of the embrace of violence that it involves. Respi, as I recall from the novel, um, is very, he, he captures that sentiment in many forms. I mean, it's not the same naked form that Sartre uh, expresses it in, but there's a, there's a kind of pervasive feeling that France doesn't deserve to endure. Um, and that, right, is that fair? Am I rem remembering correctly? I think that's correct. From the yeah, novel? I think that's correct. It's very hard to find a character in the novel. Again, the, the Westerners, the Europeans do not come across at all. It's very hard to find a character who's, who's, uh, who's trying to, uh, who represents a, a good example of someone who's trying to argue for civilizational continuity. You have a few eccentrics, but most of the time, even the representative of high culture, the one representative of high culture with which the novel begins with this, um, with this episode, for those who haven't read it, of, uh, of a young man, a kind of, um, uh, 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 vulgar, sort of miscreant, uh, threatening to destroy the home of this older man, this retired professor. Uh, and you, you could read him as a hero uh, because there he is defending his own, but what's his vision of high culture? It's basically laying out uh, a collection of food, laying out a series of, of aperitifs and enjoying this kind of uh, this bourgeois life. So the, even these people who represent, uh, who are supposed to represent, of the best of what the country has to offer are representing versions that are evacuated of any real spiritual content, any transcendent. Uh, it's, it's a kind of uh, materialism. And I think I said um, at the start, there's the apocalyptic genre that we should bear in mind when we're reading this story. We should also bear in mind the satire. Uh, it's, it's a lot of black mm. humor. It's a lot of making fun of the attitude of, uh, of Westerners who think that you know, we sometimes hear like, what, what is, what, uh, you have uh, ecumenical versions of what's so great about France and people tend to focus on the cuisine, right? That's not enough. <laughs> Can't be all just about that, much as we might like the cuisine and the cheeses. You know, but that, we certainly can't reduce it to a Julia Child's cookbook, right? He certainly satirizes the Catholic Church. Exactly, yeah. Those are very powerful episodes when... Um, the, is it an Argentine pope or a Brazilian, Brazilian pope? Brazilian, yeah. Even, even Homer knows, uh, right? 
<laughs> and who who has transformed the church into an NGO effectively. And uh, there's a great eagerness to midwife uh, the 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 death of uh, the suicide of the West. Yeah, and this is this is one of the I think most interesting parts of the novel. Um, we should bear in mind this is this is fiction, you know, in, in the sense that when Raspai was writing this in the early 1970s, uh, he did not think that he was predicting something that was that was about to happen. And in fact, he's disowned interpretations of his work. Uh, which tend to come from you know insidious circles on the uh, white supremacist circles and such people who do read the book misread it and get excited about uh, particular passages. He's disowned them, uh, but he also disowned people who say, "Oh, look, this work has such predictive power." He saw he saw what was going to happen in the in the eighties and the nineties. Uh, he he predicted the chancellorship of Angela Merkel, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, he disowned that. He said, this is a work of fiction. Uh, I, I did not see that coming, and that's not why I was writing. But again, what he did see was patterns of thinking, practices, uh, comportments that would, if you imagine what they would be taken to their logical conclusion, would entail particular responses faced with some, this kind of, uh, this kind of uh, crisis that we see emerge in the novel. And that's where the his, his insight into the into the transformations taking place within Christianity. Um, Christianity is um, confusion with Orthodox Christianity with the religion of humanity is one of the most uh, enduring themes of the novel and one we should pay much more attention to than the people who think that this is a novel about uh, about demographics, for example. Right in the 60s, you had the death of God theology. It's in the Anglophone realm more than in the French, but there was a pervasive sense that secularization, uh, the failure of Christianity was actually a success, that the marginalization of the church was, you know, it was its um, uh, Christ-like self-crucifixion, so to speak. So there was a lot of that in the air in the 60s, uh, uh, before 68, I mean, this is a kind of late 50s, early 60s trend in theology to reinterpret um, a kind of spiritual malaise as a kind of spiritual triumph. And uh, what I see in the novel is uh, um, a spiritual, what, emptiness, uh, a spiritual vacuum that he identifies. And there's a kind of casting about that the crisis that, the novel depicts is actually reinterpreted by many, many of the characters as a kind of finally the redemptive moment has arrived and we're going to restore spiritual meaning to the West as we accept our own death. Yeah. Is that fair? I think that's a great way of putting it. And what we might add to that is just thinking of the, of the kind of death of God uh, argument in theology and what that might look like in a novelistic form. One of the scenes that he satirizes is when you have is uh, early on you have twelve representatives of of of, of uh, let's call them bien uh, pensants, the people who think correctly, uh, and they come to mm. this uh, Belgian official to prepare for the fleet to embark the the market the migrant fleet to embark, and one of them is a bishop, uh, and the the Belgian sort of is thinking to himself and say, and realizes he can't tell the difference between the bishop and the other. They're all dressed alike and they all talk and say the same thing. So you have this sense that, that Christianity has just become 
uh, one amongst the many representatives of those who think correctly, uh, uh, one representative amongst another of a kind of enlightened cultural elite. Um, but I think the other thing to bear in mind too is we don't have uh, we don't have a portrayal of secularization in the sense that perhaps the proponents of the death of God thesis and others understand it, whereby the uh, elimination of Christianity is in fact the triumph of Christianity. The fact that that we have the withdrawal of, of visible Christianity is the you know the triumph of an invis invisible Christianity, um, what it's supposed to be. We still see the Christianity's role and influence in the novel. But it's a distorted form of it. And I think that's a thesis we're, worth paying attention to, that secularization um, isn't really about the evacuation of religion from the public life, but the transformation of religion in the public life, the transformation of Christianity in the public life. It could be even more specific than that. The, the concern that we have, the danger that we face uh, in kind of late modernity for uh, for Raspa, I think it comes out in some other novels too, by the by, of this. But the danger that we face is not the uh, elimination of Christianity, but rather a Christian heresy. That's our worry. So the religion of humanity becomes this kind of Christian, a kind of false. I mean, as G.K. Chesterton said, the vices of the modern world are Christian virtues gone yeah. mad. Uh, and And there's a in the novel, a kind of willful refusal to uh, acknowledge natural loves. And there's this kind of distorted spiritual heroism of denouncing or, you know, um, renouncing a love of country, love of, of uh, your near neighbor for the sake of this abstract idea. And you, 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 you emphasize the kind of false universalism that animates many of the characters. Yeah, precisely. It's a deracinated universalism. It denies the, the denies particularities, denies communities, and, and denies the bonds uh, that are formed therein. Uh, I think it's it's very interesting, just as a, as a as a general comment on our own civilizational situation that uh, we have we have much animosity towards the family. We have much animosity towards visible church, organized church, uh, constantly talking about uh, institutional uh, corruption, which is real. We shouldn't deny it, but uh, it's certainly a focus uh, uh, of, of, of trying to deconstruct and break apart uh, the, the notion of uh, church as a, as a visible kind of community. Same thing with the, the nation. But on the other hand, we have this... Uh, this uh, this Pollyannish embrace of, of universal humanity, of the possibility of common common brotherhood, common sisterhood, uh, the the language of internationalism, the language of universalism in that sense uh, has uh, has seized control of the intention of right thinking people. They're focused on the possibilities of dreaming these kinds of communities. Well, we'll destroy the visible ones that are actually around them, in which they, in which they inhabit, or at least they used to inhabit. You say that you compare this novel, Camp of Saints, as a, a, a apocalyptic novel, something that exposes uh, tendencies in our own society to early 20th century versions, first half of the 20th century versions, and that's George Orwell's 1984 and 
uh, Aldous Huxley's um, Brave New World. And uh, your article persuaded me that our spy is actually more perceptive. And here's how I would put it. Orwell, he draws his uh, attention to the kind of temptation of power, uh, which will crush everything human in, 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 uh, in, the, in the West. Uh, Huxley is a kind of uh, bottomless hedonism that will sap the energy of anything human in the West. Uh, neither of them seem actually realistic to me. Because whereas Respai, the idea of a kind of perverse spirituality, because it really is, you know, a crusade of inclusion. So it has energy, it has a kind of spiritual purpose. Um, you, you know, uh, you read that preface by Sartre and it's full of moral fervor, moral, I mean, and, you know, classic Sartrean absolutism in its moral judgments. Uh, and that does seem to me a more realistic dystopia <laughs> than just bottomless hedonism or naked power. Right. Well, I think the it's a great way of putting it, a crusade of inclusion. Um, and I think what, what uh, Raspai is attentive to is the spiritual side of this. For... For the other two, uh, Huxley and Orwell, um, they're not—they're uh, not really. Oh well, this is a bit weird on this, but they're not—they're not really informed in defining their life by uh, by a transcendent, right? That aspect of human uh, of human nature, the yearning for transcendent desire for that spiritual order, is, is not really part of their of their kind of uh, cosmos. Uh, I think that's true in their literary uh, corpus as well. Um, with some you know, asterisks for Huxley's uh, spiritual explorations here and there, we could say, uh, but leave it at that. Um, There's a lot of Matthew Arnold, the best has been thought and mm -hmm. said in Huxley. It's Shakespeare, not the Bible, right. uh, you know, who, which is the great trigger for the character that rebels against uh, uh, all-embracing hedonism. Yeah, yeah, and his death uh, indicates a kind of you know, persistence of guilt and such the circumstances of his death. Um, anyway, but I think what, what, Aspai, it, it, what Aspai understood understands the spiritual dimension of man, uh, and uh, and because he's a he's a good novelist, he's able to insert that into his work and show uh, dramatic, really uh, uh, really difficult portrayals of how people play that out in all their contradictions, uh, with all their other desires for power, lust, concupiscence. Have it what you will, but because he's attentive to that element, he's he's attentive, I think, to this argument that I think it was extremely countercultural until a couple of years ago. Extremely, actually, let me say, it was extremely contrarian until I think a couple of years ago in most Anglo-American circles, uh, certainly in French circles, right, to talk about secularization as kind of a fake phenomenon that we weren't actually seeing it. We we're actually seeing uh, the introduction of a new a new religion. Even when people use it to talk about communism, hmm. uh, communism is a new religion, right? Um, after the war uh, and such. What they really had in the background was, this is a blip in our narrative of secularization. And if we just have, like, how do yes. we defeat the communists? We just need another Voltaire to really stick it to them. Uh, really expose all the irrationalities of the dogmas and beliefs that 
come with it and we'll go back onto the secularization track. And we have a bit of that in our own uh, society when we're talking about uh, wokeism or whatever we want to call it nowadays. People using that kind of Voltairean uh, resonance. Yeah, John John McWhorter, I think, would fall into that category. Yeah, yeah, that's a good example, I think. Um, but that that perspective is is extremely dissatisfying, and I think people are realizing more and more it doesn't quite work uh, in that uh, in that neat manner. Certainly, the, the perceptive cultural commentators have moved in a different uh, direction, uh, and. Uh, and Raspail, um, I think, is a, is a good example of, of a figure, a uh, late 20th century mm. figure, who, who understands that the spiritual dimension is still going to be in play. It's just going to be, what we have to pay attention to is the distortion of it, the transformation of it, uh, the warping of it to uh, different ends than that which it served uh, in the past, not serving up to build, to build up you know, the necessary societies, family, church, uh, patria uh, nation, but um, serving to erode, undermine, and uh, and destroy them. I I was very taken by your observation that the imperialist outlook endures. In there's a way in which you know the people in France, these various characters, that he he, as you point out, they're much satirized but they still believe in the spiritual superiority of the West mm. because the West is the truly universal outlook, you know, and you draw analogies to today's notion that we can somehow have a global rainbow empire that includes everybody. So the crusade of inclusion is, uh, is a kind of white man's burden all over again. Uh, in this case, you know, disguised as a multicultural project. Yeah, and our, our poets who support it aren't as good as Tennyson and Kipling, uh, but there's there's the same uh, there's the same aspect uh, to it in the kind of of literature and uh, the, the kind of mythos that is that is attached to it. Uh, I mean, I certainly, I think, reflecting on my if I speak from a more personal point for a moment, reflecting on my own upbringing in Canada. Uh, it's only when I w went to other countries that I realized how extensive it was there. Um, and it's, it's it kind of is an interesting case of that because you have a country that's geopolitically insignificant, uh, but thinks of itself because it embodies this kind of multicultural regime as being uh, massively influential uh, as, uh, as being sort of the, the, uh, one of the uh, constitutive core elements of of the international order of the of the United Nations understood, uh, and what do they point to as examples of that? Well, the paradox is the best thing they can do is point to you know, Lester Pearson's involvement in the Suez Crisis of 1956, right? Um, but that that ambition, that uh, if you will, spirituality um, that that uh, defines the the mission of the country. Uh, Cannot but be compared with its with its predecessors. It's it's a it's a natural carrying over. When I was a grad student at Yale, I came to this realization that sort of American elites no longer able to convince themselves that America is the source of all good in the world had convinced themselves that we can at least take consolation that we're the source of all right. evil. But but either way, we're at the yeah. center, <laughs> and we we sort of set the tone for the whole world. Uh, and there's a bit of that in the, 
uh, Respy novel as well. The kind of megalomania of, um, of, 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 I mean, you certainly get that in Sartre, you know, the megalomania of thinking that everything turns on the fate of Europe. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, uh, and you know, whether an earlier generation were going to save the world by, you know, civilizing it and Sartre, we're going to save the world by, by um, accepting our own annihilation. Yeah, and it's a, in the novel, we should recall, it's a convoy of Westerners, 12 Westerners, right? the, the parody of the Apostles, uh, 12 mm. Westerners who, who launched the convoy, who put it in, into motion, including that, that bishop that I, I mentioned earlier. So, <laughs> uh, again, the, the, the satire is quite insightful, right? Even when, even when we're supposed to be talking about this uh, inclusion of the other and such, we still suddenly find a way that the only ones endowed with real agency uh, are the are the Westerners and uh, who are orchestrating it and, and putting it into motion and and I would ask by satirizing that I think but the other element that is worthwhile to bear in mind too is is the this is the apocalyptic theological component too right and it's the um, the the figure who's actually leading this uh, is a demonic figure and and that's how come we have this this apocalyptic uh, character to the novel in the other sense that there is this is the moment where the, where the curtain closes on the civilization. It's the end. The, I think that aspect of the novel reminded me of, uh, Vladimir Soloviev's war progress in the end of history that ends with the tale of the antichrist. Um, as the, he's the Pope and, and world emperor, uh, all in one who realizes the universal mission of Christianity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in a, in a, in a perverse exactly. way. Exactly. And that, um, again, that perversion of Christianity, that Christian heresy, uh, I think is probably the biggest challenge that uh, that West the West faces. Not the absence of Christianity, not the pulling out of it, um, but that distortion of it, that warping of it. And that's why I find uh, Raspai in this work and in other works um, to be a very keen uh, reader of the times. A prophet in that sense, right? Because he didn't this novel didn't predict uh, everything that that happened. And as I said earlier, he, he repudiated that sense. He didn't want to be read as someone who just predicted what happened 20, 30, 40 years mm. later. Uh, he wa but there is another sense of prophet where someone genuinely has insights into one's times, has a capacity to read and understand the underlying logic. And that's where, that's where he's especially attentive, I think. Yeah. I should tell listeners that you really can't get this book, uh, or it's very difficult to get this book. One friend of mine who read your essay uh, thought, wow, I should read this novel. It sounds very interesting. And he went to the public library, and it's not available. And he went to a university library. There's no copy. Went to another university library, no copy. So, uh, like, it, it, it's almost as if it, uh, the novel predicts its own fate. <laughs> right. I mean, I think United States. It is, um, uh, you know, help help me understand this. It it, it is. It's become. Uh, he's become a non-person, and the book has become a non-book. Yeah, I think that's that's correct in the in the American context, and it's really stunning given his literary repu uh, reputation in France. Uh, I mean, yes, this is a controversial novel. Certainly, one doesn't want to deny that. Um, but we're not talking about something that some hack, third, fourth-rate author wrote, right? We're talking about someone who 
uh, at the culmination of his career, received the in two thousand and three received the, the highest uh, the highest literary prize that the Academie Française can offer. Right, this is this is someone who who's a very distinguished writer, and yet in the Anglo American world, uh, we just don't want to seem to talk about him or engage with him in a serious uh, serious way. The only context he is supposed to come up in is the context whereby. Uh, we're immediately talking about uh, about white supremacy and what have you. Uh, so it is it is very very strange. Um, and another irony too, by the way, just to to bear this in mind uh, for our reader, is that the translator of the English novel uh, was a Columbia professor, a man of the of the left who just thought, oh, this is an interesting literary work, which should be should be translated. So it's it's very very it's very very odd to have this uh, kind of development. But I think it, it you know if I was to if I was to uh, put on a diagnostic hat for a moment, I think it shows just how uncomfortable we are with the novel's real thesis, not the, the mass immigration stuff, uh, which we, I think, we, um, we bring it out as a topic to talk about to bludgeon bad people with. Uh, um, but the... The other side of the novel, that sense that the real issue we face is this distortion, transformation of Christianity. Well, that's where, going from my diagnostic to my theological hat, right? That's the, that's, that's the, exactly the phenomenon we should be worried about in, in the end times, right? Is that uh, the, the confusion of, of, of Christ with the Antichrist and the way that, that forces work to uh, have us mix up one with the other. Uh, is something that we must be extremely attentive to so we have the capacity to distinguish. This novel is a tool of distinction, I think. When we lose that tool, I... the world becomes more confused. It's harder to uh, to identify the Antichrist and say, Guade retro, Satanam. I would submit that it's not available in the United States because we are the we are the center of the this empire that uh, Raspai um, very much disliked and one that he thought would ultimately fail um, because I think, as you point out, uh, the rest of the world has other ideas um, and they're, they're, they're not going to fall in underneath the rainbow flag uh, um, through our hidden control of their own societies and cultures. Yeah. So it's not surprising that we have banned it here. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a banned book because it's it it sheds uncomfortable light on on the empire that we would like to build, the global empire that we would like to be the center exactly. of. Exactly, and the spiritual disorder at the heart of it. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for uh, a great piece and all the stuff you're doing for First Things. Thank you, thank you. It's always an honor to write for you. Mm -hmm.